Welcome to another edition of On the Continent, your one-stop shop for all things to do with European football. My name's Dotson Adibayo. I'm Andy Brassel. And I'm Miguel Delaney. On today's show, a lot to talk about. The uh, business side of the Champions League has just begun, and it's a case of the last of the summer wine to a certain extent. Also, the most hated club in Germany are through. And was this the best year ever to not qualify for the Champions League? But sadly, we begin the show with another death of an icon of football, certainly of the 1982 World Cup in Spain, Paolo Rossi. I heard the news last night myself and it really sent shivers down me because it was a player from my generation of uh, World Cup uh, fanaticism in that in, in those days that just went way too early in his life. Uh, Miguel, as we're talking about the 1982 World Cup in Spain, I know you're a little bit too young to perhaps remember Paolo Rossi, but I imagine what he did at that World Cup is still quite legendary and talked about. Well, even in some of the discussion I saw just this morning, uh, where and especially in light of um, the other great World Cup legend or football legend that died two weeks ago, Diego Maradona. Well, I mean, just after Maradona, there's the argument that Rossi dominated the World Cup to a greater degree than any other player. And certainly... I can't think of any other striker in history that scored so many decisive goals. I mean, it, it is actually incredible that Rossi got, he was a top scorer in that, with that classic kind of World Cup number of six to win the Golden Boot. And all of his goals came in decisive games from the end. Uh, I mean, it's, it's, it, that in itself is sensational. I mean, if we're talking about cr- uh, clutch finishers, there's the ultimate example. And whatever about the kind of the, uh, the coldness of the numbers, I know with, with, with that 82 World Cup, Everyone thinks of a Tardelli celebration, but Rossi had one of those of his own when he scored against Italy. Just that that raw emotion, uh, and yeah, truly distinctive. So when he scored against, uh, sorry, when he scored against Brazil. Sorry. Yeah, and I suppose the game against Brazil, even though it would be overshadowed by the final where Rossi kicked off uh, Italy's goal-scoring spree with um, his own great header, by the way. But the game against Brazil, where he gets a hat trick, that was phenomenal, Andy. That's the one, because by the time that you get to the final and he scores against West Germany, the whole world that's not West German wants him <laughs> to do it because of what happened in the semi final between Batistone and, and, and Schumacher. So th- this, this is the thing that he talked about it in a documentary a while back as being his personal redemption, because of course he'd just come back from a match-fixing ban, a year of which was shaved off, so he was able to be picked by Enzo Berzot and make the Italy squad to, to, to play in the finals, which a lot of people thought was a really bad idea because he hadn't played football for two years. And so he comes back in for the, group st- for the first group stage, looks as if he hasn't played football for, for, for two years. And then against Brazil, you know, when we talk about um, retro football. I think we often like, get lost a bit in the romanticism of yeah, it. Yeah. But th- this isn't what Paolo Rossi's about at all. As you say, th- the numbers kind of say it to an extent. He's such a clinical finisher. And the way that he destroyed that Brazil side in that last game of the, 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 the second round, Robin, yeah. that people were absolutely in love with. If you listen to the commentary of that, if you go back and watch the BBC broadcast of that, John Motson is drooling over <laughs> Brazil. He's absolutely drooling over Brazil. And there's the the bit, the second goal, you know, you mentioned the header, Dotton, which is a great header. They're all great finishes. But the second one, the Toninho Cerezo 
mistake where he, he passes it straight to Rossi and Rossi just arrows in and exercises it into the corner. And uh, I'm sure there are still a lot of people who watch that go, why did that happen, have to happen to Cerezo? <laughs> yeah. I, I know he went on and just had a, a terrific career in, um, in, in Italy. You know, he did great with Roma. He won the league with Sampdoria. You know, that, that must have well, lived in his head forever. Isn't that quite a beautiful thing for a legacy to have? I mean, whatever about the numbers of finishing a World Cup winner and Golden Boot winner, he is, he is basically, I mean, when you think of a vintage World Cup match, the kind of the drama of it, the theatre, the emotion. That's the high watermark. Uh, yeah, yeah, it basically is the high watermark. And uh, Rossi is probably the player most singularly identified with that game. Uh, and, and, and even beyond that kind of what he represents, that emotional sense, he's just looking at his broader numbers as well. I mean, this is a striker who got 103 goals in 251 games in Serie A, or sorry, in Italian football in, general, in, in total. And in an era when Italy itself was kind of the, uh, <laughs> I mean, they're the high priests of defensive football, where goals were hard got in that, in that era, really hard got. Like a lot, a lot of the top scorers in Serie A at that point were kind of earning 15 goals. That is a really remarkable record mm. and speaks to the type of striker he was. I, I don't think anybody else, I can't think of anybody else who has got a hat-trick against Brazil in a World Cup. Having said that, that second goal that Andy talks about, I, I think people forget this, he was very alert yeah. You know, mm. Even though it might have been a mistake on the Brazilian side, he was really alert. He he, he was the fastest person in the uh, pitch to react to that, certainly. And I wonder whether, and you, you mentioned Maradona, who died a couple of weeks ago. And it, I think for all the right reasons, the world remembers the 1986 World Cup with Maradona. But does that overshadow what the achievements of Paolo Rossi in 1982, Miguel? Uh, I'm not sure overshadow because I think I mean Rossi's just remembered in his own right. It's just I suppose when when we talk about players that are def- are associated with a single World Cup and dominated a single World Cup, it is Maradona's performance that really stands above. But I I don't think in fact it actually speaks to Rossi's legacy that the next one on that list is arguably him. To be put on, I mean, to be put on that on that pedestal with Maradona is <laughs> quite a test a testament. So one end of the Champions League is over, the group stage, and it didn't it didn't end without some drama. And uh, Andy, I know you want to talk about the uh, two Ballon d'Or winners who were pitched up against each other, and for years and years and years have been matched against each other. Who's the best player in the world, Cristiano Ronaldo or Lionel Messi? So they meet in the final game um, between Barcelona and uh, Juventus, and it was a game of two old-timers, in a way. It, it was. Uh, it's, it's, it's interesting that we feel like we naturally want to frame it around the two best players in the world. If there's one thing we learned from the Champions League this week, it's probably that neither of them is the best player yeah. in the world. But um, to, to frame it like this, I mean, you know, they they did and still do, to an extent, inform this whole generation of, of, of football supporters. And, um, you know, they've lived taken it to a, a new standard. But it's it's funny because um, hearing lots of people talking about this last group game, which of course it mattered to an extent who would finish top of the group. And, you know, it looked like a hard call for Juventus yeah. to, to, to get the top spot. They they did manage it. But of course, there's a lot of people going, oh, it could be the last time they ever play each other. And I'm thinking, <laughs> it's, 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 why? Yeah. Why? It's a, who's, who's going somewhere? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But um, I, I don't know. Maybe people are starting to feel, particularly with 
the fact that Ronaldo's been a long way from winning the Champions League for a long time. So's Messi, and Messi has been in a really unenviable situation at Barcelona. For the first time, we're really getting a sense of their footballing mortality. Yeah. And not completely because of what they're doing. No, exactly, yeah. Well, although I do remember thinking, but just before the summer, actually, just before the big kind of the Champions League uh, blitz in, in, in Lisbon or whatever you want to call mm. it, I remember thinking at that point, because it, it had started to grow a little bit, whether, I, mean, I remember I wrote a piece in the time over where, where, whether Messi should now finally make the decision to leave Barcelona, which it turned out he was actually considering. Mm. But I remember thinking, oh, I'm getting quite sad about it. We're going to have to come to a time very soon when Messi probably isn't the best player in the world, is close to his retirement, and is just his powers of wane. And a little bit like bank- bankruptcy, as Ernest Hemingway said, that kind of has happened gradually and now suddenly, where... We are seeing a situation where, and of course, you, you can't divorce this from what Barcelona are at the moment, but even Messi is just not impacting games the way he has for like what is an incredible 15 years. And I mean, you, you, you could say similar of Ronaldo. I mean, Ronaldo, it's a little bit different because of his position and because he's been more, um, more singularly defined by goals than Messi. But even, I mean, like I was just talking to people during the week because I've been doing something on the Paul Pogba situation, which is connected to Ronaldo and the fact that Juventus might actually be interested in a swap. I mean, it's not, it's not impossible. But, but connected to all that it was the view that um, ultimately Juventus are trying to install this collective idea of football. They initially tried it through Sarri, now they're trying it through Pirlo. But that is actually almost impossible to do while Ronaldo was there because the way he plays, it just doesn't really fit into that collective approach. Now, obviously that was not a problem at all when he was at his absolute maximum. But now it means even more even more than ever, the event team has to play to a certain way. Then there's that kind of dilemma where a manager will be will in the long term want to instill a more collective system. But while they're doing that, it's such an easy solution. We'll get the ball to Chris. But then the problem is, it becomes difficult to wean players off that. And you're kind of, he, I mean, in the, and so this is true in the way they play, I think, where I think both Messi and Ronaldo are almost in, inhibiting to a degree what their teams can do tactically. But they're also inhibiting what they can do in the long term. And this is becoming a real issue for both teams because I think both players, they have such a gravitational weight. So that's in how they play, but also on the finances of their clubs, where because, of, huge. because of who they yeah. are, they consume so much money. And, they, and both of those clubs are at points now where they badly need overhauls. They need, re, they need, they need reboots, really. Exactly. It's, it's like, like the Lakers couldn't rebuild yeah. while Kobe was still there. Yeah. Like way past the point that, that the he Lakers, was past his best. Do you want to explain that it's a different discipline? <laughs> yeah, we, we, can, we can do that. I mean, basically, I, I, I'm, I'm thinking maybe not Barcelona fans because he might not be there next season, but Juventus fans are certainly <laughs> going to feel that in, in, in the way going forward, I think, unless that they managed to they managed to shift that contract. I mean, interestingly, you talked about the possibility of a, a Ronaldo um Pogba swap and we'll, we'll we'll come back to the game in a minute, but I th- I think it's I think it's interesting because um of course there's there's been talk that hasn't gone away for a long time now. I'd say over the last year and particularly post corona, the fact that should Juventus consider moving on Cristiano Ronaldo and that massive contract because they can't possibly rebuild while he's there. Mm. I, I think they should if there's a possibility. But if we're to use the NBA analogy again, it's almost untradeable. And certainly, yeah. I think it's changed in the last even week and a half because, of course, after the Manchester United game with Paris Saint-Germain Old Trafford, 
one of the most notable parts of that was Neymar coming out afterwards and going, come what may, I want to play in the same club as Messi next season. Now, Ronald Koeman, I don't know whether he's just stirring or being completely disingenuous, but he said in the the, the pre-match press conference before they played uh, Cadiz at the weekend, which was David Cartledge's game of the week last week, what brilliant game it was. And um, Koeman said, well, we're interested in all good players here at Barcelona. <laughs> it's like, well, well, even if Messi wanted to stay, yeah. you probably couldn't afford to keep him. So yeah, how's yeah. that possibly going to happen? Now, what that means to me is a lot of people have said, Pep, Messi, Manchester City. But Neymar, as we've said before, is is, is basically saying, or, or as I've said before, is basically saying off the back of that, bring me, bring me my guy. If you want to keep me here in Paris, bring me my guy. And that, so that shuts down the possibility of Ronaldo going there, yeah. obviously. And on that, and I know this is a discussion we'll get into in, in, in the second part about the, about the state of the leagues, but Paris Saint-Germain are also one of the few clubs, because of their ownership, that have relatively stable finances after the effect of COVID, which, which is mm. playing havoc with, with, with the current domestic seasons. Uh, so, I mean, and, and, it, and it's why I think in these situations, some are like Pogba's the same, and Ronaldo, Ronaldo's in the area, as you, as you said, Many are looking to Paris Saint-Germain as a potential way out. And it's interesting how the football world has flipped in that sense, especially from three years ago, where, you know, to leave Barcelona or Real Madrid or maybe one of the Italian giants for Paris Saint-Germain would have been seen. Like with Neymar, that was a strange decision. Whereas now, I mean, things have tilted. They have, but it's, it's even tighter for them because mm. they're getting to a point and it's going to define how Leonardo's term as sporting director is, mm. is because in 2022, Neymar and... Mbappe are out of contract. Now yeah. that's why Neymar can make these kind of demands because he's saying, if you want to keep me, they're in the middle of negotiation. And you re-up those two. How much money have you got left? I know, yeah, but yeah. Is it really well, we, we about not, money? I wonder because I, I want to go back to uh, an existential point that Miguel made a moment or two ago, which is when you have players on that level mm. of um, greatest football in the world, even though that's in the past, yes. it's hard, it's difficult to function around them because the entire team is constrained to a certain extent. Yeah, that's and, absolutely right. And, and and vice versa as well, because obviously if they go somewhere else, if somebody else snaps them up, even though their team hasn't been constrained previously, now that they're there, you get to a certain level. It's like having a great movie star, I don't know who's the greatest movie star, Tom Hanks or something, coming onto Coronation Street. It has to be about him. You know, of course it has to be. It's not about everyone else. I just wonder whether that is, to an extent, a poison chalice when you go through these... 100%. 100%. I I interviewed Kike Setien two years ago, and it's interesting given the, the subject of that interview, what happened after that. When he was talking about Messi, he said, the one player you... You, are you kind of allow your tactical system to be disrupted for is Messi. Was this before he was Barcelona? So this is when he was at Betty. This is right. summer of 2018. Okay. Uh, and he said, the one player you allow, you allow your tactical system to be disrupted for is Messi because he can do anything. And I think about that in general, and even players like Messi and Ronaldo, or, or if, you, if you want to go to Neymar as well, I suppose you indulge anything with these players as long as they're at their best because they're, they're so devastatingly good. But, I mean, it's... <laughs> There's like almost a, there has to be a coldness to it. It really does come to the point then suddenly where they drop below them being worth all the money and all the hassle. Uh, I, don't, I mean, hassle is the wrong word, but all, all the indulgence and all, all the compromise you need you need elsewhere. And it does feel like we're at that tipping point with, uh, with the two greats of the last era. I guess my, my question would be, and not entirely based on this game, because obviously it was a very bad night for Barcelona, a very good one for Juventus and Pirlo. I mean, I, I saw Guillaume Balaguer actually suggesting it was Messi's best game of the season because he got a number of shots on target. Yeah. Um, 
I, I guess the, the the thing is, I that's mean, dropping I, the standard, I, isn't it? I don't want to. Well, I don't want to just define it by this game because I don't think that's that's fair to to either of them. But you know, I, I wonder a how much Messi can do in this current Barcelona side, given that the help that he's got or that he hasn't got, and b just as a more general point, is Ronaldo's game weathering a bit better because, as Miguel said earlier. He's just about the goals. Yeah. And anything else is strictly a bonus. Well, because I think the way Messi plays as well, there is that there is that expectation that he's going to sit in a certain area and exert force over that over that whole area, mm. and they get the ball and run with it. So it's almost more it's more integrated into the team. Where Ronaldo is much more of a fixed point, and if you get the ball to that fixed point, he'll do damage. So Messi's game is more about running. Yeah. Now I, I do wonder though if. I mean, say we get to a certain point where Messi kind of just... I mean, it was actually a little bit a little bit of this in the 2014 World Cup when Messi wasn't at his physical peak. But if you sat him kind of in midfield and he started spraying balls around, I mean, he'd be, he'd be exceptional at it. Yeah. But, um, I mean, and there's an interesting... I, I do think there's potentially more evolution to come from Messi. But right now, it feels like Ronaldo's game can be more effective just because it's it, it, there's more of a simplicity to it. And I know you wanted to talk briefly about the game, Andy. Um, Jammy penalty to start off with. Let's just begin very quick. Well, it was, wasn't it? Come on now. But that's that's the brilliant thing about Ronaldo. He's so pitiless. He's absolutely <laughs> he is. pitiless. You say, like, give me the ball. Just give he's me like, the ball and put it on the penalty like, as well. I don't, I don't care if we're both qualified. I don't care if this is not quite a group, a dead rubber of a group match, but heading in that direction. I will celebrate in my customary style yes, yeah. after, after, after smashing it And we can it hear in. it now. We don't just see the customary that, style that's, of that's, putting a... That's Absolutely right. That was one of my favourite things from the Champions League this week that we've talked about, you know, the, the sound of the ball hitting the crossbar that you don't get mm. when uh, fans are in the stadium, the, the, you know, or, or a, a ball, uh, when uh, what was it, against Harry Winks scored, wasn't it? Against Ludo yeah, yeah, from yeah. ages, ages uh, miles out and it sort of rattled the back of the net. But Cristiano saying the, <laughs> yeah, that, that, was, that was pretty good, wasn't it? Cabrini. <laughs> Let's talk about uh, another, I suppose, team in the Champions League that seem to be doing really well, but nobody likes them, but they don't seem to care, Miguel. RB Leipzig? Um. I, yeah, I wrote a piece on this. Uh, well, I, I did a big one really in August when they were ahead of the Champions League semi-final, and it was, I suppose, <laughs> that interesting clash. Given it was basically a state in Qatar against a sports drink brand in Red Bull, um, and there's almost two sides to Leipzig because obviously we, we've had the discussion plenty about how their whole model goes against what it is to be a football club, and especially the social dimension of a football club in Germany. Especially because they almost you just kind of bought out another club and kind of imposed in an area, but the the kind of the other side of that, and almost contradiction and complication, is that because they did that and could start a club from scratch. Okay, they're absolutely not a model club from a social perspective in Germany, but from the point of view of what you can be as a football club, they're completely a model, and they're possibly. I mean, <laughs> if you, if you're looking to restructure your club. Leipzig are the sort of idea you 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 should be viewing and should be taking on, and because I mean, in in that sense, 
they're almost perfectly run. Uh, now, now, again, there was a slight irony on on Tuesday night in that I think it's to, so massively to their advantage the way they sign players. So they, they have a general policy. They don't sign players under third contract. It's very rare you'd ever see them sign a player over 25. And it creates a very young team that me, that can be moulded into this very specific, dynamic and kind of um, sophisticated approach of football where there's suddenly, suddenly there's players coming from all angles. I mean, the classic example of that being the score of the first goal on Tuesday, Angelino. In fact, he's their top scorer this season. But I do wonder then whether that lack of experience has an effect in some big games and certainly in some crunch moments as it did on Tuesday. It did in the semi, yeah. didn't it? Yeah, it it yeah. definitely did in the semi in, in, in Lisbon. Um, but I think the interesting thing is when you look at where they are now, they've got more experienced players than they ever had. Yeah. I, I think simply because, and you're right, it's all about player development. And in terms of the way they do that, there's, there's none better really. But now they've got sort of experienced players almost by default. They're longest serving players. So not just Gulashi, who, mm. who really stood up in that game. Yeah. Forsberg, who's 29 now, who's brilliant in the first half. Kevin Campbell, who was the only one who could really stand up to Scott McTominay yeah. in, in midfield. Who's, who's a bit, you know, he's got technique, but he, he's happy to get stuck in as well. He's 30. And I think because the conditions are so good there, I mean, I think you look at the training facilities, the stadium. Leipzig is actually a very beautiful city yeah. as well. You're very nicely paid. And there's the feeling that you're going somewhere. I mean, I always wondered if it would be the point when Nagelsmann gets to... I, I wondered if he thought that after the semi-final. Like, mm. can we go any further from this? And uh, he's, yeah, yeah, he's, I was say, yeah. He's such an ambitious guy. I don't think it's unrealistic to say there's a point where he's like, well, if I've done all I can here... I'm out. He will come to that point for him at some point. But the fact that they've sort of not bought experienced players because they're never going to do that, yeah. but like inherited and yeah, developed experienced players. So, funny enough, actually, just on, on Nagelsmann and his own ambition, I was talking to a former Premier League, well, recent Premier League coach last week. And I suppose this almost points to a little bit of the, uh, <laughs> maybe the kind of, pettiness and little jealousies among managers oh we definitely want to hear this yeah but I I was I was we we were talking about kind of you know management styles and potential options that clubs will go for and like I was I was talking about you know you know maybe Nagelsmann to Manchester United eventually or something like that and yeah, well, Nag- Nagelsmann has to prove he can do it at a club like Everton first. But they made the point that basically um, there, oh, there's a big difference between coming from a place like from Leipzig where as we've just been talking about, you you have this group of very young players. And there's actually been a little bit in the way Louis van Gaal has worked. And I mean, you could argue maybe Pochettino, that they work best. And, uh, and, this, and he, he argued that this was the test for... Moulding young minds. Yeah, moulding young minds who are, very, who are very malleable, who have no kind of prior experience or no career where they've been introduced to all these different options. And by the time they get to 28, and they've got this kind of ultra demanding mode of football kind of well hang on I don't, I don't fancy this especially in the Premier League yeah. I think and funnily enough if you look at um, Dennis Bergkamp's autobiography for example the point that he it's interesting to hear you mentioning Van Hal the point that he falls out with Van Hal he goes well you don't like me anymore because I answer back now because I've got my own opinion now. Yeah. You know, remember David Moyes proved that he could do it at Everton, but then what happened to him when he went to Man United? So hold that thought. You know, the problem with RB Leipzig, and I'm going back to your article in The Independent, um, Miguel, in August, 
is it sounds to me like a club without soul, without a soul. And okay, a soul is perhaps you know some uh, kind of metaphoric. Um, imagery within football but it's an important one nevertheless and it's something that we're thinking about a lot at the moment with the importance of fans isn't it oh yeah yeah. oh yeah and it's something that you know about with regards to MK Dons as well Uh, a team there's a a club of soul (laughs) sorry to bring that up (laughs) but nevertheless I can understand why a a manager might think oh I've gone as far as I can with this club because it's a club that you don't have an emotional attachment to if you're being brought in from outside it's not like Jurgen Klopp I can't imagine Jurgen Jurgen Klopp saying I've gone as far as I can with Liverpool he's bought into the soul of the club as fans do and as some players not all players do as well when they sort of get the trajectory of the club as such RB Leipzig doesn't have that and I wonder whether it matters anymore in football if you're saying this is a model for the future then we're talking about clubs where the soul connection doesn't have to be there I would say model only, only from the perspective of how you run your football department not in terms of kind of what they what they are as a club, um, and I mean beyond the kind of the, the social perspective of Leipzig, uh, there's all it, it does go beyond that because obviously one of the big arguments is how the kind of Red Bull have circumvented the kind of membership rules in Germany to get round all it, yeah. and that, that is a bigger issue. But just I just I was thinking there as you said that, I mean obviously like with Klopp say leaving Liverpool or when he left Dortmund, it's hard not to think there would have been compared to say Nagelsmann's potential decision. That there's a, it's much more difficult to leave a club where there is this fanatical support where you go out every week and you're in front of this wall and that there is like that will make it more difficult and I mean from with Leipzig at the moment it's it is a bit more of a sterile um, surrounding every game they well obviously right with no fans but in general I mean when fans are there because and obviously they've tried to encourage a kind of a family atmosphere and all that it's not quite the same thing but in the longer term I mean. The, the, the truth is, when you get into ideas of kind of what a club is, in 40, 50 years' time, because it is a question of time and, and a moment in time, in, in 40, 50 years' time, and when they, when they have that kind of five decades of tradition and, and being based in the community, yeah. that probably won't matter as much. I mean, if you look, look at the foundation or something, look at the foundation of Liverpool. Basically, what? <laughs> It was after Everton left Anfield. Or, yeah, well, or look, Chelsea were similar where, where, where someone, you know, a team was needed to play in Stamford Bridge. Yeah, and look at Paris Saint-Germain. They've only been there since 1970. Yeah. And, you know, really they built that through the, the European nights in the in the 90s, yeah, didn't yeah, they? Before yeah. we even get to the yeah. the, 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 the current I, I, lot. And I, I, should, I should just add, I'm, I'm absolutely not dismissing the debates about about what Leipzig are. In fact, I, I, I agree with those debates. But the point is more that these things do change over time and, and, tra- and new traditions get developed. They, they do, they do. And I, I think it's interesting to think how, for example, I, mean, I think the image of Leipzig within Germany and the image of Leipzig outside Germany mm. is quite different. I mean, a, a lot of people outside Germany just look at it yeah. in football terms. Like you look at Borussia Mönchengladbach, who've qualified for the last 16 of the Champions League. Of course, there was that great scene of them on the pitch yeah, at yeah. Real Madrid last night all huddled around the phone watching the, the end of the Inter game to see if they were going to go through and then celebrating. <laughs> that That is something that has been built up super organically. Yeah. You know, from nearly being relegated, what, eight, nine years ago, 
sticking with the sporting mm. director, and I think Archie Rintert of um, ESPN did an interview with Max Ebel, the sporting director, and he said, if they'd have got relegated that season, yeah, I, I would have been fired. Yeah, And that sort of sliding doors moment, but they've built it up so gradually since with a similarly sensible recruitment program, but with far less resources. And yeah. the group that Mönchengladbach have come out of, I mean, you look, four German clubs, Going through to the to the last sixteen, actually, impressive. Uh, I mean, if ever if someone ever wanted to pick, say, their Bundesliga club in that way, uh, Gladbach uh, almost they 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 have a great from two sides, and that they're that this really enticing underdog story, given they've built themselves up organically again from from as you said, but also they've got that real historic tradition as well. Exactly, yeah. It'll be interesting to see which of those groups, the ones with soul or and the one without soul, makes the furthest progress. Yeah. Obviously, it's looking at the moment as if it'll be business as usual in terms of who wins the Champions League. Well, it's looking like that, isn't I, I, I think it's, it's quite old. Well, I think Bayern are still a level above... Yeah. Uh, well, Liverpool look, look very strong lately as well. Well, I, I should correct myself. I should say, buying the German team most likely yeah. Oh, yeah, to yeah. succeed out of all of those. But, but, but both, I think both Bayern and Liverpool, who I guess would be the other favourites yeah. if we're looking at the whole competition, Dot. Yeah. They're both stretched at the moment. And I think it shows that you can't take anything for granted yeah. in this in this Champions League. Um, so, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised, and we've seen it before, Often you don't get the best team winning it, but often you also get teams who struggled a little bit yeah. in the group. I'm not saying Gladbach are going to win it, but teams who struggled a little bit in the group, sort of going above and beyond and gaining momentum in the knockout stages. Rossi, Rossi. It is an exciting time, though, when the uh, group stages of the Champions League uh, is over and the business end of it, as I would like to say, uh, begins. A really exciting time. Arguably, though, Andy, this year of all years is perhaps the year that you might not want to be in the Champions League because of other commitments. Or or in Europe at all. And it's quite interesting. I think if you look at some of the teams that are doing really well domestically and, you know, you've got Lyon who are going to Paris Saint-Germain this weekend, the first time they haven't qualified for Europe in 24 years. Um, obviously, from one perspective, not, not qualifying for Europe in a year like this when everyone's losing money is potentially disastrous mm. because it's another revenue stream so. shut off. But... In terms of watching, and I'm not just talking about the results, but the performances, they've, they've been one of the better teams to watch, I think, from the, the top European leagues this season because it just looks so fresh compared mm. to other teams, like playing once a week. Now, they can't sustain this for more than one season from, um, uh, from a financial perspective, from the perspective of, despite the fact they've sold a lot of the, the chaff from around the squad, they've still got a bigger squad than you would expect for a, a non-European team. I mean, you know, you look at Moussa Dembele, who's been linked with moves to Chelsea and Manchester United. He's not been in the eleven 
for most of this season so far. So um, it shows what intense competition there is. And of course, they've got rid of the the Coupe de la Ligue, the the, the French Cup at the end of last, uh, the French League Cup at the end of last season. It looks like the Coupe de France might not actually happen as well, Ooh. that logistically it's not possible to make it happen. Of course, it's not just mainland teams that that, that compete. So it, it might be tricky. And obviously that, the amateur teams aren't playing at the moment. So there's been a delayed start to it. It would normally be well underway with um, just like in England, the mm. top flight teams during, joining in in uh, January. So A, they're going to retain that freshness, but B, there could be some quite annoyed players, some expensive players, some players with, you know, standing who, who aren't going to get to play. But mm. I think you look at them, you look at Monaco, who've had some good results, including the victory over Paris Saint-Germain. You look at Fenerbahce to a certain extent, Sporting, yeah. who are top of the league in, in Portugal. And, you know, they've got nowhere near the financial advantages of Porto, who did a brilliant job to get into the last 16 in the Champions League. Five clean sheets in a row after what happened at, at Manchester City where they had, what, I guess, 30, 40 bad minutes there. Um, and, and Benfica, who are going to aim to go quite far in the in the Europa League. But the fact that Sporting got knocked out in the qualifiers for the Europa League, it's given their new... They've, they've got the most pr- precious resource in this environment, which is time. Yeah, You've got a relatively new coach in Ruben Amorim, and he gets to work with the players. Like, which one of these teams, if we're coming outside these guys, if we're looking at the teams that are in the Champions League particularly, I mean, they haven't got time to do anything, yeah. really. What what have, well, what, I, what, what have they, they're able to kind of warm down and that's, exactly. that's pretty much it. They can't even train properly. And that is why, I mean, all these situations you're talking about, they, they feed into something bigger here. And it's why I think this is an absolutely crucial season for the future competitive balance of football, especially because there are ongoing. I mean, I was on a briefing yesterday there uh, with the European leagues where there, there's there's an ongoing discussion about this, about say what's going to happen post 2024 with the kind of changes of the Champions League and crucial mm. with with those with those changes, the amount of solidarity money that goes from UEFA to clubs not competing in Europe because the the, the fear is the gap is getting too big, and, and and that's why I think this season is so key to this because w- what's happened in the last few years of European football, basically, obviously, the the super clubs and and this 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 is absolute fact. This this is a true statistic. The, the super clubs are growing financially at a much faster size than everyone else in all their leagues, and it's obviously created this accumulation or sorry, concentration of talent and resources at a certain group, group of clubs. Now, because, because of the way the calendar's gone over the past few years, obviously the, uh, the super clubs have worked around that and we've seen situations where when they get it right and they have a manager they want and the setup they want, they, they have the time to absolutely maximise their resources and accumulate all these super coaches as well. So as we've seen with, with City for those two years between 17 and 19, with Liverpool for the last two years, with Bayern, with, with, with even Barcelona before things got really bad. They're capable of these kind of 90 to 100 point seasons. And part of that, of course, is because you say there's, yeah. a, there's a training time, especially I think with Bayern and with Liverpool and Man City, or basically any club that coaches like Guardiola or Klopp are going to be at. Um, they're, they're, they're able to kind of impose and really make work the most sophisticated forms of football. Now, COVID has disrupted that, obviously. And one way is the calendar in that it's crunched it. So as Andy says there, a lot of the, a lot of the more wealthy teams, they don't have the time to really maximise their resource in the same way because they're going from game to game to game. 
and the second part of that is that COVID has completely disrupted football's financial market. And as we've seen, as we've discussed with some of the bigger clubs in the, in the last section, so Barcelona are, are close to a financial crisis. Juventus are close to a financial crisis. Madrid are close to a financial crisis. Be, uh, Paris Saint-Germain, not to the same degree, but equally they've been affected by market forces as well. Um, and a lot of these clubs, basically, they need overhauls and can't do it because of the current situation. I mean, if, if, if you look at, and actually Paris Saint-Germain suffered from this problem as well, where suddenly these clubs, because of the last few years, they have these squads stacked with players on massive contracts that they can shift. So they haven't been able to refresh yeah. in the same way. And what this is, what this whole situation has done, and this is happening right across Europe, is create this opening for, for these other clubs. And you just pointed it there, the amount, and you can go, even go to Spain, Atletico Madrid, all right, they are close to a super club, but they're a level down from Barca and Madrid in general. But it's why I think this season is so interesting and so crucial to the medium-term future of football. Because if some of these clubs can't win some of these lesser clubs lesser financially I should say if they can't win a title this season when is it going to happen I suppose the other half of that question though is when we see the moments where the super clubs are bettered and you know you can think of Leicester winning the, mm. the, the the title here or actually if you go back to was the, that in a season though where the other bigger clubs uh, were concentrating on Europe well I think the, the was, point the point is that they, they all fell to bits in that yeah. season it didn't just take Leicester being consistent it took every other big club uh, Chelsea yeah. Arsenal United etc having a nightmare and I, I think you, you look at that and the way super clubs react is always with prejudice. Exactly. And I think if you go back and like say go back to the, the Bundesliga at the start of the last decade. So you look at Dortmund winning the league in 2011 and 2012. Uh, especially in 2012 when Dortmund win the double. It's, teams can take the title off by in one season. Yeah, yeah. But when it happens for a second successive season and Dortmund rubbed it in by winning 5-2 <laughs> in the cup final, yeah. which... Um, is you know the, the the sort of it's unacceptable. Yeah, it's 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 it's, it's <laughs> for just, Bayern. It's just a bit. It's a it's a bit like a uh, dazed and confused, where um that guy O'Banion's going around giving <laughs> giving licks to all the freshers. Ben Affleck's first role, and, right? <laughs> uh, and, and yeah, he's 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 walking down he's he's walking down the the drive. Yeah, and um the mum tells the kids to get in, and she pulls a gun <laughs> yeah, on him. Yeah, 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 and, and goes. I see you on my property. I'm going to shoot you. Yeah. <laughs> and then as he goes off and he's going, oh, I was just seeing these fine young men home. The kids sort of stick their heads around the door and he goes, I saw that you little shit. I'm going to get you. I'm going to get you. And that is Bayern yeah. after that yeah. cup final. And that provoked them into being their best yeah, ever. Yeah, yeah. And they just went on a tear from then. Of course, they already had this plan where they were going in this trilogy that they talk about in uh, Marty Perrineau's, um Pep Confidential of... Van Hal, Hankers, and then Guardiola. So mm. they'd end up with this like sort of football utopia. Yeah. But the fact is, if clubs like say you got a Leon to win the league or a Sporting to win the league, I mean the reaction to that from their competitors is going to be absolutely massive. Yeah. Well, but, I don't. But, sorry, but no, you go ahead, Miguel. But you mentioned Leicester there, but I, I just if you if you look at that season as well, whatever about the kind of just wide eruptions, that was also a season where basically all of the big clubs or in some form of, of flux. You know, City were going through the death throes of Manuel Pellegrini. Mm. Uh, Chelsea had the Mourinho season where they just kind of, they, they bottomed out with the green ever seen before. Liverpool sacked Brendan Rodgers, brought in Klopp. Manchester United were, were getting rid of Van Gaal and were pretty much done with him by, by Christmas that year. 
but what what happens next then? That's uh, as Andy points it out. Summer twenty sixteen is when the Premier League became the league of the star manager. Poch went to a next level. City get Guardiola. Chelsea get Conte. Klopp gets his first full season in Liverpool and United then go back to Mourinho. Um, whatever, but the wider debate there at that at that time. Mm. But uh, but yeah, you're, you're completely right. It's just it then, but but then uh, I suppose one of the interesting things here as well like, because there is maybe a more inherent structural problem now in that a lot of these big clubs have to try and work their round over these squads that are almost stuck in place. And and that, I think that's one reason why Madrid, Barca, U, and Juve in particular have looked just so vulnerable this season because they're just kind of these lethargic operations. It's difficult though, isn't it? For, super, super tankers, yeah, aren't they? Yeah. Exactly. It's yeah. difficult for the bigger organisations, whether it be in football or in business or otherwise, to adapt to yeah. a changing situation. But, so, but, 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 just, John, I mean, actually, there'd be an interesting piece to be done on the, on the fate of the uh, the 2014 German World Cup winning squad. Because everyone goes on about Mesut Ozil. But then Juventus have their own Ozil situation in Sammy Kedera. Mm. And, and, and there are these situations that pop up all over these clubs now. It's, it's, it's funny, actually. Kedera was on uh, German telly with his mm. younger brother, Rani, a couple of weeks ago on um, um, Das Aktuelle Sports Studio, which mm. is like the equivalent of Match of the Day. And the, the, the two of them were, were in there. And normally... You know, you get warmly greeted by a studio audience, etc. <laughs> There's no studio audience <laughs> yeah, at the yeah, moment. Right. And also, Kadira was, it was almost like he was putting a, a, a note in the newsagent's window. He was going, well, look, I'm, I'm in great nick at the moment. I'd be happy to play anywhere. I'd love to play in the Premier League. <laughs> I, I would be keen to play anywhere and I would be ready from about uh, <laughs> January 1st. Yeah. yeah, I'm not sure we're going to make that mistake again. But on a serious note, though, when when we talk about the teams that are doing well, not in Europe, in these different leagues, Andy's mentioned Lyon in France, Sporting Lisboa in um, Portugal, and I can't remember, there was one more... We had Fenerbahce, didn't we? Yeah, Fenerbahce yeah. as well, yeah. in Turkey. Uh, is it the case for all of these um, teams on the continent that their fans want them to win the league? You know, there's always this argument when these uh, foreign coaches come over here that they don't understand the English fans' desire to win the league rather than the Champions League. You know, we, we, we don't care as much about the Champions League. At the end of the day, the domestic league is the paramount league for us, certainly in the top flight. Well, well, I think there are two points yeah. for that. For, first, Firstly... Is winning the Champions League as like your alternative a possibility for any of these teams? No. Even if Leon did get to the, the semi-final and did very well to do so last season. But even for the big teams though, isn't the, the domestic league the a priori yeah. league's, uh, competition to win? Yeah, I, th- I think... But Real Madrid, for example, they're, they're in a different place because their identity is so informed by the Champions League. You can... You can get away with not winning the league if you win well, the Champions they League. They just scrape through to the knockout stages. They've got yeah, I'm, I'm not. I'm not saying they're winners yet. Exactly. I'm not if saying it's such a priority is the point I'm making. I'm not saying they're winners yet. But what are they I, playing it. I, I wanted to go back briefly to um, Miguel's point earlier about where the future leads us in terms of competitive balance after a season like this, because they've had this uh, task force in in, in Germany, this um, DFB FA task force at the moment, um, which is uh, sort of trying to redistribute funds in an existing TV contract. And they've agreed to do that. They've kind of worked out this halfway house. And um, I think the the, the, um, chief executive of Leverkusen, for example, was saying, well, we voted to let a bit more of, 
the money, almost get a little bit closer to the Premier League in terms of even distribution, mm. not quite as far as that, but let a bit more of the money drip down to the smaller clubs. And, you know, the the um, uh, chief director of uh, Leverkusen said, well, you know, th- this is, we've voted for what's not necessarily the best for Leverkusen, but the best f- for the league. But of course, everyone's not going to think like that. And yeah, one of the exactly, members yeah. of the task force, uh, Jim Uzdemir, who's also a, a politician for the Greens, he said, after speaking with Rummenigge about this and the way that he, I think he put it, violently reacted <laughs> to the suggestion, I know that he's not interested in competitive balance. And how many of the biggest clubs are? Yeah. Well, it's, a, it's, it's the fundamental contradiction of what professional sport is. Because competition or business competition is about killing the competition and sport is about recreating competition at the start of every tournament. And that, that, it's, it's one thing that's never solved. But just in relation to your point though about what they might want, I think one of the keys to this is that so many of these clubs, and some of them are really massive European clubs like Sporting, like Leon, like Fenerbahce. I mean, the reality is that because of the way European football has gone, these clubs have been basically starved of the trophies that would have been, you know, come along at periodic points there history, for most of their history. It's not just the trophies, it's the hope of the yeah, trophies, the hope, isn't it? And that's what's been so depressing, the hope of the trophies, exactly. Mm. Because you can almost, you could live in a football world, say, where there was a title race. I think France is the classic example of this, really. There's been, there's a, when there's a title race every season, it doesn't matter to the same degree if the same club wins it every year if there is genuine peril that they won't. Uh, because that that's more kind of like you can see the kind of the sporting competitiveness of it. That's but, it, and the perception is actually more important yeah. than the reality because yeah. it feels like most years that there's no chance of anyone else winning it. I think we can forget that if you go back over the last decade, you've had Montpellier win it, yeah. you've had Monaco winning it. Have you had anyone else winning it in Germany or in Italy mm. over over those years? No. Yeah. But, it's about the feeling of jeopardy, and, and you, you you can see it every time when when say when Dortmund play like the, the classic example is actually was when the Bundesliga was the first league back in May, and there was a, suddenly everyone was everyone was up for it. There was all this hype about it, and, and it was the second a, game yeah, back, the second game, with all this hope that come on Dortmund, we're going to have this amazing title race, and Bayern just kill them. <laughs> it was so deflating. <laughs> It's the time, gentlemen, when you will recommend for us a a game that we can keep an eye on uh, this weekend. I'm going to go to you first, Andy, because I know that Miguel's got a cracker, so I don't want you to have to follow it, if you see what I mean. Well, following on from our last section, I want to believe, I really want to believe, and Sunday night at the Parc des Princes, Paris Saint-Germain versus Lyon, Lyon, the informed team, in Ligue 1 at the moment, playing with great freedom, um, really good football. Um, the front three of Toko Kambi, uh, Memphis, uh, Tino Cadawere is, is is really good to to, to watch. Lucas Paqueta is, is is proving a really useful signing. They, they always get absolutely hammered at the Parc des Princes in recent years. But, of course, Paris have had this bizarre situation where they've ended up having not just a Champions League game, but it being held over and having a day's less rest than they thought they might. Um, so, uh, who knows? Follow that. Uh, for all the reasons we've been talking about, I'm going to go for the Madrid derby because, I mean, I know the Champions League is the one Simeone really wants, but it's it's already been so long now that Atletico winning the league would feel a revelation again. Uh, and this, I mean, they, they have the chance to, you know, really put the boot down on, on Madrid. Can't follow that. 
delightful. This was a Stakhanov production and part of the Acast Creative Network.